This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Michelle Dawson here, the All Things Peds SLP. 
And the guest today is the lovely Susan Lee, MACCC SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category. Let me begin by announcing that today we are going way, 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 way outside of my comfort zone. So I'm serious. Like this is the stuff of my nightmares because I don't have any real professional insight into this particular area of our scope of practice. So how's that for a little bit of honesty? Let me begin. When I was in grad school an eon ago in a totally different state, literacy and reading were not addressed. Or God help me if they were, because I have then successfully compartmentalized that information away enough to never think about it again. So here's what I know. When I had a kiddo that I worked with in the public schools, but I had a concern about their ability to read, it was my role to document and refer to the lovely lady that I affectionately called Little Bit because as my daddy said, she went big as a minute. And this woman who helped me grow in grace and taught me how to work the laminator in the school cafeteria so that like I didn't laminate myself to death. Well, she was our reading intervention specialist. She had a master's in reading intervention from the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I sure as anything did not have that degree. So that was the end of it in my book. I documented and sent them a little bit. And then I happily went back to the land of early language acquisition in the early childhood special education classroom and articulation and phonology with my kiddos in kindergarten through second grades. But my, oh my, oh my, how times have changed. Let me tell you what, I have honed my scope of practice in other areas. And now it's my job to refer to the specialist when I have a concern for Arctic phonology and reading and literacy. Or if a member of the public calls me and asks me if I could work with their child, I refer on. It's not my subject area. And personally, I would make it worse. So I am in all of those that can do and treat literacy and reading and they treat it well. So now you have it. I stink at literacy. Ta-da! But today's guest, the petite and sassy Susan Lee, well, this is her specialty. This is her thing. And I love it. We met this past winter at a seminar in a classroom when they literally had trains running over our head and I had to spend a day shouting over trains. And I can't make that up. She can testify to that one. And her sweet and passionate spirit, it just shone through. So I asked her to join us and take us on the journey of how dyslexia begins and how those of us in the world of early intervention can help out by identifying potential red flags. So Susan, Now you know that I am a delicate Southern sweet pea. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing great, Michelle. Thanks for asking me to do this today. Yay. Thank you for saying yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's very exciting. Okay. So now you and I met and it was, you're in Indiana, right? Yes. Okay. But you're, you're on the, the not time zone change. I thought the whole state was on like central time. I had no idea there's a time zone. No, actually most of the state's on Eastern time and only up by Chicago is it on central. So it's, yeah. I will look at a map one day. I swear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So where did you go to school and how did you go into the world of dyslexia? Like that seems like such a different frame of reference for me. So like, how did you get to the here? So I went to Ball State University um, in Muncie, Indiana. I got my bachelor's and my master's there. And I have uh, about 22 years of experience. I've worked in the public schools and medical settings. I've done about nine years in early childhood, along kind of part-time 
slash full-time, depending on the time frame that we're talking about. I've done a whole lot of different things. I've actually tried to start a private practice a few times before and failed. And it was always just traditional speech therapy kind of thing. And in our area, most of the time parents are looking for insurance to pay for speech therapy. And so Mm -hmm. it was really hard to get private pay kiddos and, and, you know, navigating all the insurance world was, was Mm -hmm. not something I was looking at at the moment. And so Mm -hmm. I kept, you know, going back to work at the school or the hospital or, or back to first steps. I've, I've done first steps, which is our early intervention program in Indiana three different times over the years. And so just, you know, different ways on my path to figuring out what I was supposed to be doing. And so actually a few years ago, um, I was working in the public schools and I had a kiddo who just didn't really kind of didn't really fit the qualifications and criteria to be in the speech therapy in the schools. She was average on all of the tests I gave her, but the teachers kept saying there's something else here and, and her spelling was horrible. And I didn't really know much about that. As you said, I wasn't trained in any of this either. And if I was, I don't remember it. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) you know, I just always thought dyslexia was a really rare reading disability. It didn't have anything to do with speech pathology. And like you said, you just kind of refer on and and move on. Go about your day. (laughs) And so, but, you know, this this little girl was, you know, just kind of stuck in my head. and, And I started talking to a colleague and she said, you know, have, do you know anything about dyslexia? Nope, nothing. So I actually started looking into dyslexia and it started trying to figure out if that could be what was going on with her. I gave her a phonological processing test and she bombed it. So then I knew there was something there. I actually bought Mm -hmm. the first level of the Barton reading and spelling system, which is the system that we use um, in our clinic now. And I started using that with her and that is a specific program, which falls under the category of Orton-Gillingham, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more later. But Um, that helps with dyslexia. I I started it with her. She made amazing progress. And um, even the school psychologist, when they finally tested her, he said, I don't know what you've been doing with her, but it's working because of the difference from my phonological processing assessment to his. So I was a believer. And I then decided that I was going to start getting more training in dyslexia. I took a graduate level course that was actually given by Susan Barton. And is she the Barton behind that book series that you were talking about? Barton Reading and Spelling System. Is she that same Barton? Yes, it's a program. Yeah, that she developed. Yeah. So she's one of the national experts um, in dyslexia. And so... I did my training with her and became a dyslexia consultant. And then I've had, I've had over 120 hours probably total of training dyslexia in the last few years. And now we actually in our, my clinic, because I, I tried the private practice thing yet again, but this time, <laughs> this time, including dyslexia. And I have about eight tutors that work for me now. We use the Barton system and we tutor over 50 kids. And actually a couple of adults. And so, and it's amazing. It it works. And these kids actually catch up because the schools historically have not provided the Orton-Gillingham intervention. And it is the only research-based proven program that's ever been proven to, to work with kids with dyslexia. And again, schools in my area, at least, there might be some out there who do, but many, many times they don't provide that. And so the kids never really catch up. In their reading, writing, and spelling skills, they just continue to be behind and, and they, you know, might steadily 
slowly grow, but they're always two years behind or they're always three years behind or however far. And eventually some of these kids end up graduating high school, a lot of them with a third or fourth grade reading level. And it's just unacceptable. Mm. It is heartbreaking knowing what we know, you know, knowing this actually Orton Gillingham has been around since the 1930s. So it is just unfathomable that we still are graduating kids with, you know, third and fourth grade reading levels. Okay. So you and I got to talking about this, that lecture deck and what you didn't know, what I didn't have time to share was that at that time we were actually, we had just had legislation passed here in South Carolina, the major university here in town, um, university of South Carolina, they were instrumental in helping to craft draft the legislation. And it was basically a dyslexia bill and it laid the framework that school speech pathologists had to be included in the dyslexia team. And at the time, you know, I'm state association president. I am hands off of this. This is not my thing. I happily plucked an email from our lobbyist to the lady who is now president, who's one of the heads over there and she's a goddess and amazing. And like, she got the gurus on her staff to participate in the drafting of it. But it just blew my mind that speech pathologists are now part of the team for the diagnostic and the treatment. And that's just so cool to me. But then it brought me back down to the world with which I work. And I have had kiddos that, I don't know how to explain it. You just, like you said, that little girl kept you up at night. You know, the kiddo that you just can't put your yeah, finger many, on. Many, many, many of them. But something's <laughs> yeah. not right. Yeah, yep. that kiddo, right? So I'm in there doing emergent literacy in the sense that I'm adding core vocab words to their speech generating device so that the child with autism has a functional means of communication to access, you know, I have a hurt, I'm thirsty, those kind of things. But sometimes just watching them access their device it just struck me as odd, their mannerisms around it. And, you know, I always cracked it up as a, a fine motor issue, or maybe they got a cortical vision impairment or something like that. But after talking with you, even though it was brief, it left me with questions. And then talking with, you know, one of the colleagues here in town, it, it made me worry more. What are the warning signs that an EI SLP can catch? I mean, I treat kids from birth up to elementary age and some middle schoolers. And I'm part of that transition teams, but some families choose not to transition to the public schools at three. They stay in with their EI team until the kid's five and then they go over. But isn't five a critical age for literacy? I mean, I got a six-year-old, so I feel like five is, we should be knowing some words by then. So help guide me. What are three early warning signs for dyslexia? So actually, um, yes, five is definitely a critical age. To start off with, there are actually 20% of us that have dyslexia. So it's a way bigger number than anybody ever thinks. We have 40 years of government research that says that 20% of us have dyslexia. And now it ranges from mild all the way to severe and profound. So the mild, the kids with mild dyslexia, you may never notice and the parent may never notice. And, you know, there might be little things that you see here and there as they get older, but for the most part, you know, we're not going to really treat those kids or pick up those kids, but the ones that are moderate down to the severe and profound, of course, 
are the ones that we, you know, will definitely be trying to identify and help. So we're looking at a much bigger group of kids than anybody really acknowledges, I think, a, a lot of times. Yeah. I had um, no and again, idea. none of us got trained. Teachers didn't get trained. Teachers don't know what they're doing, what to look for either. And they don't know how to help. They want to help, but they don't know how. And speech pathologists didn't get trained. And that is changing. There are a lot of states that are enacting laws. Indiana, we just got a dyslexia law last year. And so, you know, it is the landscape is changing, thankfully. I don't know why it's taken so long, but but it has. But dyslexia is actually, um, it's a neurological language-based learning difference. And so it okay. is a language processing issue, which is definitely completely in the speech pathologist's wheelhouse, but we never knew that. <laughs> so, you know, it was nothing any of us ever knew about or thought about for the most part, I think. But what we're looking for is actually one of the biggest things that we look for is dyslexia in a close family member. However, the issue with that is that dyslexia is typically has not been diagnosed. So if you ask a parent, oh, is there anybody in the family that has dyslexia? Usually the answer is no. But if you start asking these other questions, yeah. which are, is there anybody in the family who struggled in school? Is there anybody who, you know, worked really hard in school and maybe still got C's? Is there anybody who doesn't like to read, who's a slow reader, who's a bad speller, doesn't like to write? Those kinds of questions will often get a, oh, yeah, it's me or it's dad or it's aunt or uncle or cousin. And so we are looking for a close family member. It is inherited. It is genetic. They found three genes that dyslexia falls on. And so, yeah, what? crazy. I had no idea. This <laughs> what? So, okay. Yeah. Three different three genes, genes that it can fall okay. on. And so that's one of the biggest things we look for. The next biggest thing we look for is, is a speech or language delay. And so this is where, you know, our, our early intervention people come in and, and these kiddos that are late talkers or that have articulation impairments, there's a likelihood that there could be some dyslexia. Now, it doesn't mean that every late talker, obviously, or every kid with an articulation impairment has dyslexia, but there definitely is a connection and a correlation. And there are there is research out there that says that children who were first identified at age two as late talkers, they actually usually will outgrow what they call outgrow their language deficits by age four, but they demonstrate delays in academic readiness at ages five and six. Um, they also persist in demonstrating, mm -hmm. demonstrating social skills deficits, even when the language delays have resolved. And also that there is an underlying deficit in the um, organization of the roles of the symbolic systems. And so that has to do with the social skills deficits as well. And then they have found that even though, you know, there's a potential recovery in the language delay a lot of times by age five, the majority of these children actually ended up with reading disabilities by grade two. And so, you know, we are looking at a huge majority probably of the kiddos that we see as speech pathologists. And even um, in Indiana, we have something called developmental therapist in our early intervention program who kind of look at the child as a whole and ended up working on communication delays as well. And so, you know, the majority of the kiddos that we see when they have a, a speech or language delay could potentially have dyslexia and end up with, you know, learning disabilities, reading issues down the road, and even um, issues with math and writing um, that can come along with that. 
You just described a lot of people, including my youngest, which my husband's uncle has severe and profound dyslexia and had to go to like a whole special school. And he's brilliant. One of the smartest men that I'll meet. And one of his cousins has dyslexia. And my mother-in-law was a special education teacher before she retired. And we have a special needs uncle and my youngest. And I'm like, yes, you watching closely. Those are a lot of red flags. The definition of dyslexia actually is that they have average to above average intelligence. And a lot of these kids are really smart, but they don't feel smart. And so they end up being depressed and anxious and all kinds of emotional problems that come along with struggling in school. Um, And so the earlier, again, early intervention is key. It always is. The earlier we can identify this and, you know, get these kids on the right path with the right kind of help and understanding that there's not something wrong with them. It's just a difference in the way they learn. And it's if we teach them the right way, they can learn and they can be extremely successful. So other things that we can look for, though, are chronic ear infections. Actually, the gene. Oh, my God. <laughs> you're describing Theodore. Stop. So, Continue. Um, the, the gene, one of the three genes for dyslexia also has the chronic ear infection on that same gene. Um, so just because they have chronic ear infections does not mean they will have dyslexia. I always have to say that, you know, it is a cluster of symptoms that we're <laughs> looking for. But, and just because they have dyslexia doesn't mean they'll have chronic ear infections. However, it's one of those red flags, constant confusion. Yeah. Just because you have eczema does not mean that you have EOE. However, there's a correlation. Um, Constant confusion of left versus right. And so they get really confused about directions, directional impairment. They might be late establishing a dominant hand. Um, Usually by the age of four, we'll know which hand they're going to write with. But many of these kids, and and I should dispel the myth that because people with dyslexia are left-handed, that's a myth. There are lots and lots and lots of myths out there about dyslexia. They don't read backwards either. And so I always... Okay, wait, stop. What about the color thing? Yeah. The looking through colored um, sheets. Does, Is that a myth? There are kids who have visual processing issues that that helps, but that does not in any way really do anything for dyslexia. It's just if they have an additional visual processing issue, then that could be helpful. Interesting. So that, you know, and they're not, there's no truth to that people with dyslexia are left-handed. However, they typically could be late developing their dominant hand. Usually by age four, we'll know that. And it might be much later before you know which hand they're really going to write with. And a lot of these kids may continue to be ambidextrous as well. They'll do, you know, use different hands for different tasks, kind of a thing. Difficulty learning to tie their shoes because they have difficulty with sequencing and also some fine motor coordination issues a lot of times. Um, And so they might be seven or eight before they learn to tie their shoes. Trouble memorizing their address, phone number, alphabet, days of the week, months of the year. All of those things are really hard. So when they're in preschool and you're trying to get them to memorize this and you're like, oh, my gosh, we've been working on this forever and you still don't have it. That's Mm -hmm. a red flag. Mixing up the sounds and syllables and long words and creating words that rhyme. Also things that you might see difficulty creating words that rhyme. So that if they mix, they're mixing up things like hangover for hamburger, aminal for animal, and then also rhyming, they just really don't get rhyming. And that is actually because of difficulties with phonemic awareness. And so I know we probably have a lot of speech pathologists that listen to this, but for anyone who, who isn't aware, that phonemic awareness is actually being able to manipulate sounds, individual sounds within words hearing and manipulating them within your head in a one syllable word, uh, basically. It's an absolutely essential pre-reading skill and no amount of phonics teaching will work 
if the child doesn't already have phonemic awareness skills. And so that's one of the big things we can look for because kids who are typically developing will just get that naturally by listening to us talk. They'll figure out how sounds go into words and words go into sentences and sentences go into conversation. Kids who have dyslexia will not do that. They have difficulty with auditory discrimination and auditory memory of individual sounds and individual phonemes. And so we actually have to explicitly teach them all of that. And if we don't, then they're never going to be good reader. Because if you can imagine, how can you sound out words <laughs> if you if the sounds don't make sense to you? I mean, I don't really teach that high level. So this is really interesting because most of the kiddos that I get, you know, by there's very few that I'm actually working uh-huh. on like that skill set. And if I'm working on like, if I get a kiddo that's into the phonology effort and I happen to know one amazing mama that does listen to the podcast and who I treated feeding and swallowing and did a, some phonology while we were transitioning to like the goddess that also treats <laughs> my own tiny human for phonology. But like, that's hard and a very talented highly skilled task within speech pathology in and of its own right is teaching. Yeah. And like you said, the Mm -hmm. more severely involved kid is, of course, you know, you're not even, they're not even talking most of the time. I'm not even getting it. Like, I mean, we're. But we have many, many kids who, you know, the typical kiddo that I get is, you know, the language delay. They're just behind. They're they're saying one word and they should be saying phrases or, you know, they just don't have very many words. And, you know, mm-hmm. those kiddos, it's it's amazing now, now that I know what I know about dyslexia. So looking at my caseload I used to have in the public schools and my early intervention caseload and saying, oh, my goodness, a majority of these kids probably have dyslexia. Um, you know, and you're talking about 20% of kids and you think about how many kids are on the speech caseload, <laughs> you know, in the schools, it's kind of a similar number, yeah. you know. So yeah. very likely a lot of those kids, given that it is a language processing issue, impairment, if you want to call it that, I like to call it a learning difference, but um, there's actually a difference in the way that their brains are made, the way that their brains process this information. There's a different pathway to get there. And, but they can learn. They just have to do it in a different way, which we'll talk about probably in a minute. <laughs> this is so utterly fascinating. I have to be honest, Susan, I was scared to death. Like when, when you said yes, I was like, oh my God, Michelle, like what did we just get ourselves into? Also, I talked to myself <laughs> in third person. So like, but I mean, like, and that's normal, but I was like, this is so far out of my comfort zone. Are you even going to be able to like have a conversation? Because... I mean, like I, as I mentioned before, like I'm an educated smart aleck, but this is so utterly Well, it's okay. I was scared to death too. So even though okay. I, I talk about this in front of crowds of people, but for some reason, this whole recording thing was a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> so I promise, come to Orlando in November, meet me at ASHA and I'll pay you back with a good stiff whiskey. Oh How about that? <laughs> I don't really drink. I might take a Coke, I mean, you know. <laughs> Okay, Okay, well, I'll have the whiskey for you, whiskey meat, and I'll swing you a Coke, all right? Uh, (laughs) Everybody's like, that must be. I'll get so much done. (laughs) Whiskey meat. (laughs) Jameson, all the way. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm not. Okay, all right, I digress. So we've covered the red flags, and now I'm thinking, like, (laughs) everybody on my caseload probably has dyslexia. So 
I'm going to throw a curveball at you. At what age can a child be tested for dyslexia? And like, what does that actually look well, like? Well, um, so it's about five and a half years old is usually when we can really officially test. And they have to have had, we usually like them to be halfway through kindergarten. They have to have had, you know, even if they're homeschooled, they have to have had some instruction, obviously, in, you know, the pre-reading skills in order to really be able to assess. Because obviously, if they haven't, then we can't check and see if they know the sounds and the letters and how some of those things work. And if they have some early words that they're learning how to read. Typically, what I look for um, and the way I was taught to do this was a lot of informal tools. And so um, we have them read graded word lists and, and there are specific kind of error patterns that we're looking for. And then we also have them read... What do you mean graded word list? Like a kindergarten, first grade, second grade, just a list of random words for that level of that grade. Like the Dolch primers? Because I'm, I'm yes. familiar with yes. like the Dolch. Yes, similar to that. Yeah, just words. like these oh, graded word okay, lists cool. that are... This is a kindergarten level word list. This is a, a first grade level word list. This is a second grade level word list. And then also have them read lists of nonsense words. And we want them to read lists of words instead of reading something in a paragraph, which, I mean, we also have them do that. But when you, they read in a paragraph, they're reading something that is in context. And a lot of times, because these kids have difficulty sounding out words and figuring out what the words are and decoding them, that they will rely on context clues or picture clues. And so when we look at a list of words, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. They just really have to figure out what the word is. Whenever you really can't perceive the sounds correctly, it's really hard to be able to sound out words. So basically the only way that these kids are left to learn to read is to memorize all of their words. And at some point, you know, typically by third grade is about where they hit the wall because they'll be able to read to some extent, most of them, unless they are severely to profoundly affected. But by third grade, they'll usually hit a wall in their reading because there's just so many words and all the prefixes and suffixes come in and they just cannot memorize any more words. Their brain is full. So we look for that. We look for them reading by the shape of the word, the first and the last letter. We look for them transposing letters, leaving letters out, putting letters where they're not supposed to be whenever they read or, or sounds actually whenever they're reading. And when they're writing, it's the letters. And we look for a lot of different types of error patterns. And then when we're looking at nonsense words, you know, those are words that they have never seen before. So they really have to be able to understand how the sounds work and understand the phonics rules and how words work in order to be able to decode those words and figure out what they are. So that's why we look at nonsense words. We also have them read a paragraph. Again, this is my kind of informal assessment that I was taught to do. So I have them read a paragraph with a Dibbles assessment, which is one of the standardized assessment tools that they use in the schools. It's called Dibbles, What's but it's called? basically getting a fluency reading level. Um, how quickly can they read a passage that they've never seen before and how accurately can they read it? So is that named after a guy or is that a nonsense It's word? an acronym. Just curious. Okay. <laughs> you can have a nonsense word and I totally yeah, would run with it. Like, yeah. But there's a whole lot of different types of assessments like that. And then we definitely give a phonological awareness or phonemic awareness assessment. There are several of those out there that are standardized. The one that I use is called the CTOP2, Comprehensive Test of Phonological Processing. There's the Test of Phonemic Awareness. And there's some other literacy tests that you can use that are standardized to get some numbers. I also have them do some writing for me. I'll have them write a paragraph if they're old enough, if they're younger. 
we write the alphabet, we write, we try to write the days of the week, the months of the year, their address, things like that, just to see, you know, are they having difficulty remembering these things? And we also look at sounds. Can they hear the sound and write it down, the letter for it? And also, can they look at the letter and tell me what sound it makes? And so those are a lot of the things that I do in my assessment. A lot of other places, you know, that neuropsychologist typically is who tests for this or a school psychologist. They don't necessarily test for dyslexia in the schools. They test for learning disability in reading, but they will use more standardized tests. IQ tests were always standard for a long time to test for learning disability because they had to show a difference between IQ and achievement. And that actually changed in the law. And so now they don't always do IQ testing. Yeah, in the in the federal, federal law, law um, I believe it was state. federal law. But now they don't always use IQ testing. Um, at least here in Indiana, if I'm wrong about that, I could be wrong. It could be it could be just on the state level. But no, you know what? I asked because I feel like I read that somewhere. Because it used to be like we had to have like oh my goodness, yes. when I worked in the public schools, yes, you had difference, to have two yes. and a half standard yeah. deviation. And so there were many kids who were yeah. falling through the cracks because they didn't have that difference, but they were still struggling. Oh, and right. so now IQ tests aren't always standard. Sometimes yes. they use them, and they'll do achievement testing, and then they'll do some of their other standard testing that they do when they do a special education evaluation. And so, you know, again, there's differences in the way that they test, but five and a half is the age, the earliest that we can test, like officially test. But before that, we can look for signs and symptoms and, you know, see if there could be a pattern emerging there. And as far as the testing goes, whenever I say five and a half, the public schools, at least here in Indiana, it will be later before they would test for a learning disability. They won't do it in kindergarten unless it is extremely severe. You know, like they are so far behind already, but a lot of times they'll say, well, let's give them some time. (laughs) Let's give them some time. And unfortunately for these kids with dyslexia, that is a disservice to them because the earlier we can catch them and give them the right kind of instruction, the Orton Gillingham based instruction, the better the outcomes, hugely better. Now it's never too late because like I said, we even tutor adults. We can always go back and do the right kind of instruction and it works, but it takes a long time and it's hard work. And if we do it early and we catch these kids early and we give them the right kind of instruction in the beginning, then they'll never never struggle the way that, you know, a lot of these other kids have for so long. And so getting them identified as early as possible is key, but the schools will typically not test for this learning disability, at least in Indiana until later. It'll often be third or fourth grade before they'll agree to test. And by then they're often several years behind. Okay. So my mother-in-law taught special ed. And so she was the special ed teacher to me being this quote unquote speech teacher in the public schools, like a lifetime. ago. I mean, back in the day when like you could do that with bachelors and while I was going to grad school and she was always adamant that if a kid had a concern for a learning disability that she did there, that they got tested for dyslexia by first. And she did Orton Gilliam and another one. There's another one that Wilson's learning, Wilson's readers or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wilson reading protocol or something. That was big. In- yeah. Yeah. So she, those were the two that she always used, but I know that she did the Orton Gilliam and the whole, like she wanted to do that with my children and, you know, Goose is reading like advanced. <laughs> she goes, well, maybe he still needs Orton Gilliam. And so I asked the kindergarten, yeah. was like, tell yeah. her to not worry. I was yeah. like, okay. I will pass the message. But how long did these assessments take? Because that was one. 
And I do ask that with a slightly familial curiosity because one of my nephews is getting assessed for yes. dyslexia and dysgraphia, which I just find that yes. dysgraphia right. is a thing. I thought that was post-stroke. I didn't know yes. that dysgraphia could be like a developmental thing. And my sister was like, he's testing for hours. And I'm like, bless his heart. But like, how long does testing for this actually take? So my testing actually takes about two hours. Oh, but well, when at you what go- do you make them come back? <laughs> what? Like, do you do two hours all at once? I couldn't sit. I do. For two hours. Yeah, oh I do. Okay. But with some of these kiddos, it's difficult. We have to take lots and lots of breaks. And sometimes it takes longer because we have to take breaks. But with a typical student, it takes about two hours. But again, you know, this is just an assessment, a lot of informal tools that I use, a couple of standardized tools. And I actually don't give a diagnosis of dyslexia officially because I'm a speech pathologist. I give my report says that they fit the profile of dyslexia and it'll give a severity rating based on how long the intervention is going to take that we think it will take whenever we do the assessment. Again, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a medical doctor. I can't give a medical diagnosis. But what I do give is a report that tells a whole lot about you know what their dyslexia looks like that this their profile looks like and what kind of accommodations and help they need, what kind of tutoring they need. And so it gives a lot of recommendations and it is not anything that, you know, they can take to the, I mean, they take to the school, but they can't, you can't force the school to do anything with it. It's just for the parents benefit, you know, to say, you know, yes, looks, looks like my child fits the profile of dyslexia. You know, what can we do about this? And a lot of times the school will want to do their own testing but sometimes it does help encourage the school to do the testing. But their testing at school, yes, generally takes several hours, I think. Uh, you know, they usually break it up into sections. And then if, the, if you go to a neuropsychologist, then typically that testing will take several hours. And so, again, yeah, usually they'll break it up into different sessions. So it's just a different type of testing. And again, those, the neuropsychologist report will actually have that official medical diagnosis of dyslexia. My report, actually, I've had a lot of luck with the doctors in my area, have been great to take. If the parents need that medical diagnosis, the doctors here have been great to take my report because they can't test for dyslexia, but they'll yeah. take my report and they'll, you know, write that in their medical record that they have a medical diagnosis of dyslexia by the doctor based on reading my report. And then the parent can take that and use it at the school or wherever they need to have that for, so... That's awesome. But yeah, it, it does. It's, it's, a long, it's a long process, especially, you know, if you actually go to the neuropsychologist, because there's a lot, a lot, a lot of standardized testing that happens with those kids. Oh my gosh. Okay. The amount of paperwork that must be in your world. Like, I know I have a boatload of paperwork, but I'm just like, that has, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. It takes a long time. <laughs> and keep on trucking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it takes a long time to score and analyze everything and and write the report. Yeah, and then I usually have a, a face to face meeting with the parents. It takes a couple hours to go over everything, but it's amazing, you know, how appreciative these parents are of having actually someone actually listen to them because a lot of yeah. the time they've been fighting the struggle of there's something wrong, and you know the school just keeps saying, oh, they'll be okay. Let's give them some more time you know, or they did get tested and they didn't qualify for anything. And, 
you know, they just continue to struggle and the parents know that and see that and they want to help their kids. And, you know, it's hard to find a way to help them because dyslexia has just, you know, not been as readily, I guess, out there. Yeah. Acknowledged yeah. And, and tested for and, and the intervention hasn't been provided as, as it should have been for a lot of these kids. So, okay. I have a sweet friend over in Fayetteville, North Carolina that just, she was a big feeding guru. Like her and I get along like peanut butter and jelly talking about all things like, <laughs> you know, PO intake. And she was like, I am the only one out here and um, I've had to start treating dyslexia. Yeah. So I'm going to like, like when an email pops up, like doing an introduction between the two of you, like y'all yeah, that'd chat. be awesome. Yeah. Like, yes, yes. Networking. Okay. All right. Let me transition to the next question. All right. So to close us, because we've identified risk factors thus far, we have discussed how an individual sits still for that many hours <laughs> to go through that comprehensive testing. You have given the family a answer to the question of what is wrong and you've laid it out. Okay. So here's what we know where the delays are. Most This is the dyslexia diagnosis that you do not make, but the neuropsych and or the pediatrician make based off of your assessments. How do we treat? And like, that's my, like, how do we actually take and help these kids reach those dreams? Yes. And by the way, they don't sit still for two hours. Most of these kids are <laughs> <laughs> I have the the balls that they bounce, you know, they bounce on therapy balls or sometimes they're rolling all around on the ground and, you know, some, they need to move. And so I let them move as long as they're, you know, coming back and sticking with me. And so, yeah, yeah they got to have that movement. Sure. Yeah, no, you should see me squirming trying to do a recording, dude. I can't sit still when I go to recording. It's always funny because... The lovely Chad who edits these is like, Michelle, quit smacking things on the table. And I'm like, I can't sit still. He's like, sit in the middle of the room and touch nothing except for the microphone. But then don't touch the microphone. And I'm like, I can't do that. (laughs) Well, that's okay. I'm still talking with my hands, even though no one can see me. Because if I sit on my hands, I can't talk. So that's just the way it is. I gotcha. Uh, That's all. But yeah, so. Squirrel treatment. Yeah, squirrel, definitely. So, oh, and actually that brought me to another squirrel was you saying that actually 40% of kids who have dyslexia also have ADD or ADHD. So it is definitely a thing and it co-occurs. I connect to that part. Yes. We're good. uh, Me too. And, um, but I will say that a lot of these kids get diagnosed with ADHD when in reality it's dyslexia because they look like they're not paying attention because they don't know what's going on. They don't understand what's happening. School makes no sense to them most of the time. And so they sit there all day and they're daydreaming and they're fiddling around because they have no idea what's happening. It's like if I went to some, you know, high level math or science course that I didn't understand, I'd be looking out the window daydreaming about, you know, going to the park. I, I there's just... You, I'm just laughing because somebody was like, yeah, my girlfriend had to work 7.30 to 7.30. I was like, that's a really long 12-hour shift. And they're like, oh, sweetie. Or no, 10-hour shift. I can't even say it right. I got the math wrong. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I passed the GREs to get into grad school. So like, I understand. Oh, I know. But it's, you know, they just, they don't know what's happening. And so it's hard to know. Is it ADHD? Is it, if they're struggling in school, you know, 
and there's some dyslexia there, it's possible they could have some ADHD, but it's possible that it could just be because things are hard and they don't get it in there. So they're not focusing because of that. So it's hard to know. And I think a lot of times, a lot of these kids get thrown into the ADHD bucket, at least where I'm from, because they don't get tested for dyslexia. And so it's like, oh, well, it's an attention problem. It's an attention problem. Well, it might be, uh, you know, but it, but it might not be. And so we always say, you know, go get them screened for ADHD. Make sure if that's there or not there, untreated ADHD will definitely affect their progress, any kind of tutoring or intervention program they're in. But, you know, it's hard to tease out sometimes. Okay. So let me blow your mind slightly okay. before we go into that. Uh, my dear friend, Dr. Garner, the ENT that I work closely yeah. with, he shared some research that a significant amount of our children with ADHD actually have underlying obstructive sleep apnea. Huh. That's interesting. And so the children aren't heading the level of deep sleep that they need to actually allow their brain to heal and process like the day's events uh -huh. because we're supposed to hit that deep sleep cycle to like, I don't know, the way I see it is everything goes from short term to long term. Right. Yeah. Like, have you, ever, have you seen the movie? Oh my goodness. Inside Out. Yes. I love that movie. Okay. That's what I kind of imagine. Like somebody up there like going, ba -doop, uh -huh. ba -doop, and, but our children that have ADHD and I can't remember, he said when I interviewed him on the episode, a significant, it might've been as much as 60% of those kids actually have obstructive sleep apnea. Wow. And that if you address the obstructive sleep apnea, a lot of these children no longer require ADHD medications and can go off of them for the first time. Wow. So, and it's because of like either enlarged adenoids right. or malaria, malaysia, malaysia, or like, you know, some other, you know, nasopharyngeal obstruction. That's incredible. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. We now have 10 minutes. Okay. So in 10 minutes, treatment for, oh, wait. We talked about treatment, but I also need to do, how do we have a conversation with these parents? So basically, well, actually, let's do the, how do we have a conversation first? Because we'd have to have the conversation before doing anything else. Okay, cool. So I promise folks we'll get to treat yeah. it. Ha. Huh. So, <laughs> so um, it's, it's difficult. Again, it's just like whenever, you know, we're trying to bring up, mm, could this kid possibly have autism, but we aren't allowed to diagnose autism. And so it becomes difficult whenever you're the first person that's in that child's life that is, you know, really seeing and possibly identifying these issues. And on the note of autism, that's something else that, that I, this is just me wondering about. I don't, there's no, I don't know of any research about this or anything like that, but it would be mm -hmm. interesting to find out because of all the social skill issues and language development issues that come along with dyslexia. I really wonder if, you know, some of our little bitty kiddos are not sometimes getting misdiagnosed with autism because we can't test for dyslexia yet. Because that just happened to my girlfriend. Oh my God. Literally that happened. They diagnosed the the child that she's in the process of adopting with, with autism years yeah. ago. She's a special, early childhood special education prof like yeah. teacher. This is her job. And she was like, this is not autism. This is some type of learning yeah. disability. And they went through it. And she texted me a week ago to say they finally got yeah. the diagnosis of dyslexia. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I just think and yes. I've seen yes. I've seen some kids who got diagnosed early with autism and then later, you know, oh, this is dyslexia. Now, does that mean that they don't have autism? No. But it just makes you wonder, are those things that we're seeing early, they're not talking, 
and they have some, you know, sensory issues and they're socially awkward or, you know, some of those kinds of issues that we attribute to autism often. Could it be that some of these kids are getting misdiagnosed? Because you look at, you know, how the autism rates continue to increase, the prevalence, you know, just keeps going. I think, what is it now? One in 48 or something. I don't know. And it used to be one in hundreds. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, that's crazy. And I know there's all this environmental stuff that contributes and, you know, all the research behind all of that. I'm not saying that that's not there. I'm sure it is. But it makes you wonder, like, okay, so we have, you know, one in five kids actually have dyslexia. So are we really misdiagnosing some of these kids? And is this why, you know, the prevalence of autism keeps increasing and increasing? Increasing. And Mm -hmm. but again, at that age, we can't diagnose dyslexia. So, you know, the doctors are doing the best thing they can. (laughs) They're like, well, looks kind of like autism. So let's do that. And the families get services and all of that. So, you know, I mean, there's there's good things that happen from that, but it just, you know, it just makes you wonder. It's just one of those things, you know, makes you go, hmm. The thing of it is we need to be sure that we're looking for the dyslexia as they get older to make sure that we don't miss it. But okay, so talking to these parents can be difficult and it just kind of depends on, you know, how open they are to it. But often, you know, trying to have that conversation about, is there anybody else in your family? Is there anybody in your family who kind of struggled in school? I know, you know, you probably say this is a weird conversation for a two-year-old. I get it. But, (laughs) you know. No, but I mean, anybody who struggled in school. That's one that I have to have. So yeah. You know, anybody that, that maybe doesn't like to read or isn't a great speller in your close family, you know, if so, then it's possible that there could be some dyslexia and, and it's related to language delays. So I just always tell parents now that I know about it, I never did before because I didn't know anything. But, you know, now when I have these kiddos, you know, I just tell them when there's a speech delay or when there's an articulation issue, then we, you know, that's one of those things that we look for as a potential sign of dyslexia. So as they get a little older, if you're noticing some of these other things, and I usually give them, you know, a list of warning signs, which Susan Barton on her website has a great, really concise warning signs list that I use. And so okay. I, you know, give them that and say, hey, this is just something to keep an eye out for, you know, doesn't mean that they have this. And even if they do have it, it's not the end of the world because they can learn. They just learn differently. But the earlier we get them the right kind of instruction, the better. So, you know, it's kind of more along a prevention line at that point when they're little. Because later, once they're older and they've been struggling for so long and they're so far behind, it really is traumatizing and devastating for them emotionally and for the parents because they don't know how to help and they don't know what to do. And so, you know, the earlier we catch this, the better for the whole family, for sure, and for the child's future. And if you're seeing some of these signs, the biggest thing with these little kiddos is that phonemic awareness piece. And so, I mean, you can just go Google, you know, phonemic awareness activities for toddlers or whatever. You'll find all kinds of things to do. But also we speech therapists do a lot of this for people who who don't necessarily or aren't in that field, making sure that you're talking to the child often and regularly throughout your day, through the whole routine of doing the dishes and doing the laundry and whatever you're doing, you're telling that child what you're doing. You're talking about what they're doing. And you're talking very clearly and over-exaggerating phonemes so that they can hear them and just to articulate very clearly and make sure that this kiddo is hearing people talk and not just sitting in front of the TV is another big thing. Or in in front of an iPad at this point. Yes, true. That's often what we see. Mm -hmm. They need to hear 
actual humans talking to them, not just people mm-hmm. on the TV. And they need to be able to watch your mouth. They need to be able to see how you make sounds, to feel how you make sounds. And actually, the components of the Orton-Gillingham instruction are that it has to be explicit, sequential, and multisensory. It has to have all three of those components in order to be successful. And Orton-Gillingham is a big umbrella. There's a whole lot of programs underneath Orton-Gillingham that are to help kids learn to read. And so, again, you know, Googling Orton-Gillingham programs, you'll find all kinds of programs. And the important thing is, is that it's Orton-Gillingham. The International Dyslexia Association also calls Orton-Gillingham structured literacy. So you might also see that. But if you're looking for a program to help your kiddo, Orton-Gillingham-based instruction is the best thing we can do. And phonemic awareness, exercises, activities, whatever you can find on phonemic awareness. And also, like I said, just talking to your kiddos. I feel like teacher pay teachers. It does. It has tons of teacher pay teachers. Awesome. And it has tons and tons of things on it. The biggest thing though, like I said, being explicit is that we have to teach every single sound and every single letter. And, you know, they do this in school, but they don't do enough of it for these kids. The majority of the kids are going to get it, you know, and they're going to move on. But when they move on, these kids are still left behind because they didn't get it. They need many, many, many more repetitions of things in order to learn than typical kids do. They also, again, need to be explicitly taught everything and they need to be taught it over and over and over again. And it needs to be sequential. It needs to be very small steps, build on each other, you know, make sure they got it before you move on. And again, in schools, that's kind of impossible because they have all these curriculum that they have to get to and, and you know, tests that they have to teach for and whatever. Unfortunately, our our governments, you know, like to make them take standardized tests. Test us a lot. That really, you know, don't show a lot of anything except that the kid's good at taking a test. Well, it's really (laughs) honestly the case. (laughs) I'm just laughing. And so, you know, and these kids get so stressed out about these tests because, you know, in Indiana, if you don't pass iRead in third grade, which is a reading comprehension test, uh, you're likely to get retained. And the kids know this and the kids, I mean, there's so much pressure put on these kids. You have to pass this test. You have to pass this test. You have to pass this test. And, you know, the other standardized tests equate to whether the teachers get raises or not and whether the school gets, you know, funding or not. And so there's so much pressure put on these kids. And these kids with dyslexia, they have a really hard time passing these tests. And it really doesn't show, it's not showing their growth. It's not showing, you know, their actual skills and how much they're learning. So we, you know, we really want to, I really don't know how I got on that topic, but. I mean, easily it, it's all correlated. I'm, um, I'm totally hanging. I'm trying to think of where good. I was cool. now. I've kind of lost my place. I don't know. I was so going down the rabbit hole with so you. <laughs> I'm not really sure. We were talking about, oh, we were talking about Orton-Gillingham instruction. Oh yes. We were talking about, it has to be sequential, small steps, make sure they're mastering yeah. things before yes. we move on. And then it also has to be multi-sensory. And so, and again, we have lots of teachers who are really good at this. You know, it has to bring in a movement or a motor component. And, you know, they skywrite, they write in shaving cream, you know, they do all kinds of really cool. I have seen that done. Yeah. The shaving cream thing. And the teachers always tell them this does a really good job of cleaning your desk. (laughs) That's great. And I don't know if it's true, but like I've seen a lot of kids Uh get really excited about. Uh, But yes, a lot of teachers do a really great job with bringing in multisensory activities. However, it just doesn't go far enough for a lot of the kids, especially the ones who are more, you know, on the more severe side of dyslexia. 
they have to have all three of those components and a very structured prescriptive program. And so, you know, yes, bring those in because it's going to help all the kids. But some of these kids that are really struggling, they need this prescriptive structured program that is based on Orton-Gillingham methods. And the other thing I was thinking was, so in Indiana, and I honestly don't know if this is a national type of a program or not, but there is a foundation called the M.A. Rooney Foundation that's um, in Indianapolis. And they actually have been doing a, a pilot program um, in the Indianapolis public schools of a classroom-based Orton-Gillingham approach, which I actually had some training on this at one of the dyslexia institutes in Indianapolis. But it is really cool because it takes the Orton-Gillingham approach, which was actually created to be an individual tutoring type of program, and creates it into a classroom learning environment. And so M.A. Rooney has actually created this program on their website. They have like lesson plans for kindergarten, first and second grade for this classroom learning approach. And it is free. And they'll also provide training. I know in Indiana, I don't know if they do that other places or not. But so for kindergarten, first and second graders, that they would all be taught with an Orton-Gillingham methodology because it teaches all kids to read. You don't have to have dyslexia to learn to read with Orton-Gillingham techniques. And it doesn't leave the kids with dyslexia behind. And so it is. It's amazing. That's and fantastic. so, you know, I'm thinking, why aren't the schools doing this? And I think some of them are getting on board now. But, you know, we just need to create that awareness that, that this exists and we should be using it. It's actually not that expensive to get the training, you know, especially like this foundation is doing it for free. And to have the use these resources to be able to teach all kids to read and not leave these ones behind. Now, the ones who have the more severe to profound dyslexia, they're still going to have to have that intensive individual intervention, but it's at least going to start them on the right path. And the kids who, you know, aren't as severe, they may never need anything else. That may just get them where they need to be and they may never struggle. And, you know, this is what we need to see um, moving forward. That, that I, I, so many thoughts. Number one, I wish all early childhood special education classrooms across the country were fully embedded with multiple layers and types. Of yes. Amen to that. Yes. To so like, I feel like if we just like threw speech generating devices all the way down to like, I'm here today, like Velcro adaptations, like there, it would, that would start our little ones that have all the delays and that qualify for an ECS classroom right out the gate for success. Now, take that, run that into everybody, go with the Orton Gilliam training from kindergarten on up. Honey, we just solved special education problems, like massive ones. Yay, Susan Lee for director of oh, special I don't education think, no, for no, the nation. No, I don't, don't want to run that. <laughs> I'm good with that. Wait, oh my gosh. I just found out that the superintendent of education for the state of Arizona is a speech pathologist. <gasps> that is awesome. I love that. I Yeah, squirrel. <laughs> so anybody out there living in Arizona, hats off to that woman. That's Absolutely amazing. Definitely, because that is not my calling. But I no, think it's really cool that she's. No, I think that's really cool. <laughs> and like, and she's a beautiful woman inside and out. Like one of my girlfriends was telling me all about this lady, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to grow up and be that. <laughs> okay, all right, we are like over because we're you know amazing like what? that. 
And we do have to switch over to questions. But first and foremost, Susan, you rock on so many levels. And I kind of want to have you come back for like a part two. So literally pick any topic and I'm game. All right. That sounds awesome. Was, well, thank this you was so much. Wonderful. And I mean, you're just like a wealth of knowledge and refreshing for my soul. And I'm definitely going to watch the adore like a hawk. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, All right. My daughter actually has dyslexia. And so, Does she really? yeah. And she was in eighth grade before I learned about this and realized that it's not severe, but you know, it, it's there and, and realized, oh my goodness. And our other daughter actually has the dyscalculia, which is the math part of it, which is a whole other topic. But yeah, it's Ooh. very interesting. So I definitely okay. have some firsthand knowledge myself. <laughs> so when, when you come back, let's cover all the disses, the, the okay. dysgraphia, dyscalculia. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a disc conversation. <laughs> I am told it's a thing. <laughs> awesome. Oh my God. This is so great. Okay. All right. Hold on. And let me switch over to questions. Okay. Okay. All right. Hang on one second. Hey, Michelle here. Did you know that First Bite, fed, fun, and functional is partnered up with feedingmatters.org? That's right. Our pod courses and webinars can be found on the feedingmatters.org uh, learning center. Also, be sure to mark your calendars for two days of evidence-based education on pediatric feeding disorders, the entirely virtual 2020 International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. That's right. On January 24th through 25th, 2020, join pediatric feeding leading experts for intermediate and advanced level sessions, no matter your location. For more information, visit ipfdc.org. One more time. That's ipfdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.